the History of the World podcast, written and presented by Chris Hasler. Volume 4. The Medieval World. Episode 7. The Byzantine Empire. Part 2. The year is 628 and the political situation in the Middle East is grim. The Byzantines are in control of the lands of the eastern Mediterranean but they are lucky to still be in existence following an allied siege of their capital city conducted by the Sasanian Persians and the Avars. The siege failed and the Sasanian Persians collapsed into civil war soon afterwards, enabling the Byzantines to reclaim lands lost during the war between the Byzantines and the Sasanians over the last two and a half decades. The emperor of the Byzantine Empire was Heraclius. Heraclius had changed the official language of the empire to Greek, turning his back on the traditional Roman language of Latin and moving the empire closer to the population, who were mainly Greek speakers. With the reclamation of former Byzantine lands to the Byzantines, would come the holy city of Jerusalem. This was bad news for the Jews, who had benefited from the expulsion of the Byzantines from Jerusalem, as now they feared the consequences of the holy city coming under the rule of a Christian empire. When Constantine the Great's mother, Helena, travelled to Jerusalem in the 4th century, she recovered a Christian relic called the True Cross, which she would claim to be the cross on which Jesus Christ was crucified. When the Sasanian Persians successfully besieged Jerusalem in 614, the True Cross was confiscated and sent to Shah Hosro II. After the Byzantines decisively defeated the Sasanian Persians, Heraclius reclaimed the true cross and ceremonially took it back to Jerusalem in the year 630. Heraclius expelled the Jews from Jerusalem unless they converted to Christianity, but in reality the Christians would not have allowed the Jews to remain there regardless of anything Heraclius would have decided anyway. Heraclius is described as one of those emperors whose legacy would have been greater had he died shortly after this episode in Jerusalem's history. He would have been seen as a great Christian imperial leader whose name would have been categorised among the best of the Roman emperors. However, Jerusalem's tribulations were considerable in the first half of the 7th century and Heraclius 
would witness further tribulation for the great city before he did indeed pass away. Just four years after Heraclius' glorious journey to Jerusalem with the sacred true cross, and Arab invaders from the south invaded the Levant under the leadership of a Muslim caliph. This was the first major incursion into Byzantine lands by the Muslims, who had formed under the Prophet Muhammad deep in the lands of Arabia earlier in the century. No sooner had the Byzantines resisted the most serious threat to their very existence, namely the Sasanian Persians, than a new powerful military entity had emerged to pressurise them once more. And there was not a lot of energy left in the Byzantine reserves to be able to resist these invasions. Such was the threat of the Arab armies that the traditional enemies of the weakened empires of the Byzantines and the Sassanids would even combine forces in order to resist their advances. Then, the highly admired Caliph Umar took control of the Rashidun Caliphate and launched a series of successful attacks on both empires. The Sassanids were forcibly pushed back eastwards to Mesopotamia while the Arabs pushed northwards towards the strategically important lands of Armenia which had always served as a traditional buffer state between the Romans and the Persians. Now the Arabs could strategize against the Byzantine lands in the Levant while separate Arab armies terrorized the Sasanian cities of Mesopotamia such as Ctesiphon. Under the strategies of the Caliph Umar, the Arabs were able to successfully take the city of Damascus before turning their attention towards Jerusalem itself. Knowing that resistance was futile, the Byzantine Christian Patriarch of Jerusalem called Sophronius gave the keys to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre to Caliph Umar of the Rashidun Caliphate. And it is said that despite the Islamic conquest of Jerusalem, Caliph Umar paid an amount of respect to the Christian Church of the Holy Sepulchre that signalled his intention to display a degree of religious tolerance towards the Christians and also in turn the Jews who had been persecuted by the Christians. Once again, the Byzantines had been cut off from their land connection to Egypt as had also been the case when the Sasanian Persians invaded their lands just a generation before. Naturally, it would then make sense for the Arabs to target the fruitful lands of Egypt, now isolated by land from Constantinople. In 644, the Arabs besieged Alexandria, and it is said that only a token force of the Byzantines were able to offer any kind of resistance. The fall of Alexandria to the Arabs marked the end of an era of Hellenism which had existed since the times of Alexander the Great after whom the city was named. The fall of the Byzantine lands of the Levant and Egypt marked the end of Roman influence over these lands and therefore the legacy of great Romans such as Pompey, Julius Caesar, Mark Antony and Octavian, later Emperor Caesar Augustus, was now just an episode of history. The Islamization of these lands was complete and was the future. 
the Arabs would continue to travel westwards along the Mediterranean coast of North Africa, taking control of the Libyan lands as far as Carthage, which was still able to look out across the sea to Byzantine-held Sicily for strategical support. The Byzantines were in full-on defensive mode in the face of the Arabs during the 7th century. With the Arabs having taken control of the strategically important seaport at Alexandria, including the maritime resources captured, they were able to launch raids on Byzantine territory by sea, including the capture of the island of Cyprus. That is, until an agreement was reached later in the century to share the taxation benefits of the island, due to the fact that the island was difficult for the Arabs to defend due to its close proximity to the Byzantine-held Anatolian mainland. The Arabs would attempt to navally bully the Byzantine coastal lands of Anatolia nonetheless, and would even score naval victories against the more experienced nation. It is even written that the island of Rhodes was taken by the Arabs, with the remnants of the Colossus of Rhodes being sold for scrap. The Byzantine Empire seemed to be powerless in preventing the onslaught of the Arabs, and the aggression was continuous in favour of the Muslim warriors. The wars of the early 7th century had been terrible for both the Byzantines and the Sasanian Persians and the Arabs had successfully eliminated the Sasanians from the map, taking control of the whole of Persia. Now, the Arabs believed that the Byzantine Empire was also theirs for the taking, and the Byzantine imperial court was in turmoil. The Byzantines were being ruled by emperors of the Heraclean dynasty, who take their name from their patriarch, Heraclius, who defeated the Sasanian Persians before the arrival of the Arab Muslims from Arabia. In the 660s, the empire was under the rule of Heraclius' grandson, Constans II. Constans was on a hiding to nothing, being desperate for money in order to finance these desperate defences. He travelled to the Byzantine-held Italian lands which had not been conquered by their enemies in Italy, the Lombards. He re-established a court in Rome and from there he would begin to strip the wealth from his Italian holdings, which infuriated his Italian subjects. He was assassinated while in Sicily and succeeded by his son who ruled as Constantine IV. The Siege of Constantinople By the time of the reign of Constantine, the Arabs had been making successful incursions into Anatolia and were now in sight of the Byzantine capital itself. The seat of Arab power had moved to Syria since the establishment of the Umayyad dynasty of the Islamic Caliphate so that the centre of their power was now very much in close proximity to the Mediterranean Sea, and so an assault on Constantinople would have been done by sea as well as by land due to the city's location on the Bosphorus Strait and its considerable defensive walls. Come the year 674 and the start of the protracted siege of the city of Constantinople would take place, with the Arabs hoping to take control of the Byzantine Empire 
in the same way that they had taken control of the Sasanian Persian Empire. At this point, everything had been going against the Byzantines since the arrival of the Arabs, but during this siege the Arabs got a nasty surprise as they had underestimated the resourcefulness of the Byzantines. The precise details are quite sketchy, but a new incendiary device caused havoc for the Arab naval fleet. A highly flammable oil-like substance had been discovered by the Byzantines, who propelled it, possibly by a pump, at the wooden boats of the Arabs. The flammable material would burn on the surface of the water, which would also make it difficult for the Arab boats to retreat. It is quite possible that this weapon, called Greek fire, could have been a game-changer, although we will never be quite sure about its true impact on the course of history. It has become immortalised as legendary story of Byzantine success against the odds, so contemporary historians may have glorified it in a bid to sensationalise the story. However, by all accounts it was a nasty surprise for the Arabs who had not prepared to respond to it and saw a significant number of their naval fleet destroyed. The Arabs were forced into conceding that their siege of Constantinople had failed. Despite all of the problems that the Byzantine Empire had been facing with aggression from foreign parties on many of its fronts, it was still able to prevent its own ultimate capitulation. The Byzantines were able to score land army victories over the Arabs that pushed them back, so it wasn't all about the defeat of the Arab fleet. The Arabs were pushed back and forced to make a truce with the Byzantines. Much like when Heraclius broke the siege of Constantinople by the Sasanian Persians and the Persians descended into civil war, Heraclius's great-grandson Constantine IV had resisted the Arabs before the Arabs themselves descended into the second fitna, a civil conflict within their own empire. This was some well-needed breathing space for the Byzantines. The Byzantines were still required to fight on different fronts though, and we previously mentioned that since the reign of Justinian, Turkic peoples arrived in Europe and raided the northern frontiers of the Byzantine territory. They would form a nation called the Avar Khaganate and would displace Slavic people of those lands. These displaced Slavs are distinguished by being referred to as the South Slavs. Some of these South Slavic peoples were made subjects of the Avars. Another group of Turkic peoples would follow the Avars into these lands from the area of the steppe around the North Caucasus, and they were called the Bulgars. While the Arabs were causing so much trouble for the Byzantines during the 670s, the Bulgars were taking advantage of the distraction by raiding the lands north of the Balkan Mountains along the coastal lands of the Black Sea. Constantine IV was forced into a position of conceding lands to the Bulgars in the aftermath of the Arab siege of Constantinople and this marks the establishment of the first Bulgarian Empire 
on the border of the Byzantine Empire and we will be mentioning the Bulgarians again in relation to Byzantine politics. The Fall of Carthage The focus of Byzantine defences switched back to North Africa again, with the Arabs breathing down the neck of the city of Carthage. Constantine IV was succeeded by his son, Justinian II, and this would mark the beginning of a new period of Byzantine instability, which historians have named the Twenty Years' Anarchy. Justinian was very unpopular as the emperor, being regarded as a violent despot. He would wage war against the Umayyads in Anatolia with mixed results thanks in part to the abilities of a loyal Byzantine military general who had also served under Justinian's father Constantine. The military general's name is Leontios. After a particular defeat, however, Justinian had Leontios imprisoned and this only served to cause problems because on Leontios's release he organised a rebellion against Justinian. Leontios deposed Justinian and made him suffer the humiliation of a rhinotomy. Rhinotomy was not uncommon in Byzantine culture and was specifically the amputation of the nose. This would lead to Justinian being referred to as Justinianos Rhinotmitos, otherwise known as Justinian the Slit-Nosed. Leontios assumed the position of Byzantine Emperor and Justinian was sent into exile in shame. But this would not be the end of Justinian's story. Leontios took control of an empire in turmoil and very quickly had to deal with the news that Carthage in North Africa had fallen to the Arabs. The year was now 695, and an already disastrous 7th century for the Byzantines was not looking like it would finish on a high. Leontios would send an army to the Exarchate of Africa, the Byzantine division of North Africa that equates roughly to the modern-day Maghreb. The army would be led by a man called John the Patrician and he would be supported by a military general called Tiberius Apsimarus. The Byzantines would initially launch a surprise attack on Carthage from their Mediterranean strongholds and may have been surprised themselves to find little resistance from the city folk. Carthage had been retaken and those weak-numbered Arab forces who were left garrisoned in the city had to make a hasty retreat inland to the newly built city of Kuruan. The Arab general responsible for dealing with the situation was a man called Hassan ibn al-Nurman. He started drawing up plans to retake Carthage. John the Patrician would have been all too aware that it would only be a matter of time before an Arab response could be expected, so the Byzantines desperately tried to drum up support from the local Berber populations, as well as appealing to some of their traditional European rivals, such as the Visigoths, who may have been tempted by some of the rewards of the fruitful African lands. 
when it came down to it, and Hassan ibn al-Nurman did return to Carthage in 698, the reality was that the Byzantines and their allies could not transport enough support into the city quickly enough to prevent it from falling, and so the Byzantines had to surrender the city to the Arabs. Hassan was in no mood to show any kind of sympathy to the citizens that had betrayed him by allowing the Byzantines easy passage into the city in the first place, and in an act that echoes back to the Roman destruction of Carthaginian Carthage in the 2nd century BCE, the Arabs completely wasted the city, thereby giving the Byzantines nothing to come back and fight for. A new Arab city called Tunis was built as the new harbour city of this area, and that city is now the modern-day capital city of the country of Tunisia. The outcome was a complete disaster for the Byzantine Empire, who would subsequently end up losing all of their North African possessions as the Arabs moved in to control the entire Maghreb, and it would also be a complete disaster for the usurping Emperor Leontios. John the Patrician's military forces retreated to the Mediterranean island of Crete. Knowing that Leontios may be shamed into taking action against the failed military expedition, the military general Tiberius Apsimarus may have rallied the support of the remaining Byzantine soldiers and rather than face imprisonment, execution or even rhinotomy, he would take control of the army following their murder of John the Patrician. Bubonic plague is reported to have hit Constantinople again at this time, and Tiberius Apsimarus took this opportunity to march on the city and depose Leontios, subjecting him to the same rhinotomy that he himself had conducted on Justinian. So now Tiberius Apsimarus was the new Byzantine Empire, ruling as Tiberius III while Justinian II and Leontios were both former emperors with no noses. Justinian was in exile and Leontios was in prison. Tiberius began drawing up a plot to have Justinian in exile executed, but Justinian fled to Bulgaria where he would approach the Bulgar Khan Tervel for help. The term Khan spelt K-H-A-N, is a form of the Turkic word Khan, spelt K-H-A-G-A-N, which is the equivalent word for a monarch. And the word has culturally migrated to become a common surname across the lands of the Indian subcontinent in the modern age. With the support of the Bulgars, Justinian sneaked into Constantinople and deposed Tiberius III, proclaiming himself as the emperor once again. This was against Byzantine law, which stated that no mutilated individual was permitted to become the emperor. This didn't matter to Justinian, who imprisoned Tiberius before taking both Tiberius and Leontios and publicly humiliating them by ceremonially putting his foot to the back of their necks while sporting a new nose made of gold to replace the one carved from the front of his face just ten years earlier. Both of the fallen usurpers were then executed. 
Justinian's second reign as emperor was no more popular than his first, with many rash military campaigns including an invasion of the territories granted to Bulgaria as an initial reward for their assistance. It would only be a matter of time before Justinian was removed again, and this time he and his infant son were executed, thereby ending the Heraclean dynasty of the Byzantine rulers. The Siege of Constantinople Again With the weakening of the Islamic Caliphate following the Siege of Constantinople some 40 years earlier, the Byzantines were able to establish some authority over their remaining Asiatic territories again. However, the Umayyads were now back in control of their internal affairs and the erratic behaviour of the Byzantines during the 20 years' anarchy all led towards the balance of power slipping away from the Byzantines once again. As the Muslims approached the city of Constantinople again, the new Byzantine Empire was Leo III. Leo had usurped the imperial throne very shortly before Constantinople required defence again. He was a military general who originated in the area of Isauria in Anatolia and as such he would be the first emperor of what would become referred to as the Isaurian dynasty. Leo would leave his mark on Byzantine history, but before he had the chance to do anything, he needed to defend Constantinople from Muslim attack. The question had to be, had the Muslims learned anything from the failed attack on Constantinople, that was initiated just 43 years earlier. If we read our history books about this second Muslim siege, then it glorifies the success of Greek fire. We mentioned Greek fire as something significant in the Byzantine resistance of the first siege. This was the highly flammable oil-based fluid that was propelled towards the wooden ships of the Arabs that would also sit on the water's surface ablaze, making it impossible for some of the Arab fleet to even simply escape the scene. Add to this the fact that the Bosphorus Strait is a narrow waterway that separates the Black Sea from the Sea of Marmara, and we understand there to be some quite treacherous water currents to be negotiated in these specific waters, which are somewhat unwelcome when attempting to avoid flammable fluid being projected in your direction. Greek fire, generally, is a very mysterious invention. We don't truly know the exact formula, but we have suspicions about its makeup, including the presence of a highly flammable liquid extracted from fossil fuels and called naphtha. There are two interesting things about this. Firstly, the fact that the Muslims also possessed naphtha and also used it in warfare, and also brought it to the siege. Secondly, the fact that the Arab world was at the forefront of the scientific world, and particularly alchemy, which is incidentally a word based on an Arabic language. So if anyone was likely to have invented Greek fire around this time, then it would have been the Arabs. The fact that the most exposed face of the city of Constantinople was the sea-facing coast meant that naval attacks were always going to be necessary 
and the most effective way to repel naval attacks was by the use of naphtha, which is likely to be why the whole Greek fire story may have been glorified in a way that might even have been somewhat misleading. I'll be the first to admit that I have no direct study of these things and as usual my knowledge is an overview and based on secondary accounts. But the glorious defences of Constantinople and the effectiveness of this naphtha mixture in these particular circumstances are likely to have led historians to proclaim this as a great victory for Hellenistic culture and just by calling it Greek fire we may be deferred from understanding the real origin of this particular incendiary weapon. Incendiary weapons are recorded deep into history for many many centuries before these Arab sieges of Constantinople but this particular style and mixture really only appears now and the uniqueness of Constantinople's geography certainly lends itself to Greek fire being a particularly effective defensive weapon for the Byzantines. So we can argue that although the Arabs may have brought more resources with them to this second siege than they did to the first siege, that they may not have learned their lessons being heavily affected by Greek fire. And once again, finding that living in encampments outside Constantinople set up to prolong the siege would have been like living under siege as well, within fertile lands and stretched supply lines, meaning that the besiegers may have had to resort to eating their pack animals and even each other just to survive. These lands were not just comparatively infertile, but also quite hostile, with Bulgars happily attacking the Arab armies. The second siege of Constantinople was a complete disaster and the Muslims were sent packing once again. Muslim historians would try to glorify the attempt as an impressive attack on the Byzantines but Constantinople certainly did not fall which is the only result that matters. Following 20 years of absolute chaos with the leadership of the Byzantine Empire having usurpations and regicides reminiscent of the Roman crisis of the 3rd century, the new Isaurian emperor, Leo III, would maintain his supremacy at the head of the Byzantine Empire for a significant amount of time. Leo's legacy is quite profound. By listening to this episode, you could be forgiven for thinking that he would be the most well-remembered for his resistance of the mighty Umayyad Caliphate and their siege of the Byzantine capital city. However, we would be overlooking the effect of Leo's religious attitudes and how that would affect the Christian church. Leo's attitude was so radical that he would alienate himself from the traditional Christian patriarchy of Rome. Rome always saw itself as the capital city of Christian culture, as the traditional superior patriarchate of the Roman Christian church. However, the modern Romans saw their own centre of culture as the new Roman capital city of Constantinople, and as such, it should be the patriarchate of Constantinople who was really at the head of Christian culture and worship. This gradual schism would eventually split the Christian church and its political connotations would eventually 
give rise to the Holy Roman Empire of Europe, which in turn would give impetus to the glory of crusading and also be a contributing factor to the fall of the Byzantine Empire, which predated the Ottoman Empire. Thank you very much for listening to this, the second of four parts regarding the Byzantine Empire. And uh, next week we'll be getting into the the later stages of the Byzantines where we see the emergence of the Turks and then in turn the Ottomans, a story that we've already followed earlier on in the volume. And uh, of course there's some very uh, there's some very important battles that take place and not least of all with these new entities on their borders, the Bulgarians who play a very important part and we'll also be looking closer at some of those battles as well. So we're going to be staying with the Byzantines a bit longer. And of course, they will feature quite strongly in the stories of the uh, development of the Christian world and the uh, the Crusades. So plenty to look forward to. But obviously, uh, we're in a chronological timeline at the moment. And we're going to continue that next week and the week after. Two more um, episodes regarding the Byzantine Empire. The Ancient World Cup. Well, we do this every week now, the Ancient World Cup, and uh, I can't imagine there's too many of you that don't know what we're doing now. It's uh, a competition between 64 ancient teams. Um, each week we uh, we explore four of those teams and we pit them against each other. We put them to the vote on various forums, so... Uh, History of the World podcast listeners, hot welders as we refer to them, will vote on who they uh, want to advance to the knockout stages. So with these four teams, two will go through to the knockout stages and two will be knocked out of the competition for good. And uh, we put it to the vote. We're on Facebook, uh, the History of the World podcast web page on Facebook, the group. Um, we've also got it on, uh, I think, um, Jenna Osborne has, has put it onto the history of the world podcast, um, unofficial fan group. Um, so the votes there have been counted, uh, also on Twitter and on the Tapper talk discussion forum. So there's many different forums that we gather the results from. So we add them all together and it's my pleasure to say that this week for group F, we had more people um casting votes than any other week so uh, a record number we had 61 votes which is uh, wonderful so thank you to everyone who voted um i can now announce the results in uh in final um in in first place let's go first place um with 49% of the votes uh, this week uh, were the minoans so the Minoans with 49% of the vote. I'm going to announce who was in last place. So the team that finished fourth with just 5% of the votes were the Kushan Empire. So we lose the Kushan Empire from the competition. The Minoans will go through and now it's down to the Judeans and the Scythians who will advance um with them and then um with 23% of the vote um i can announce that the team in second place were the judeans 
and the Scythians. So they've both got the same amount of votes, both with 23% of the votes. And now we're in that difficult situation. We've got, we had it earlier on uh, with the Sasanians and the Israelites um, back in Group uh, D, I think that was, or Group... No, Group C, I'm mistaken. It's in Group C. So we, we've got a similar situation where we, we have an inconclusive result. Uh, we know the Minoans are through, the Kushans are out, but the Judeans and the Scythians, we can't, um, we can't split them apart. So we're going to maybe have to have some kind of playoff um, towards the end of the round. So um, we've, we've not just got one, we've got two, and we might well have another one before the round is done. But that is it now for Group G. Oh no, it's not. It's it's Group F. I beg your pardon. Sorry, that is it for Group F. Um, forgive me. It's, it's because I've got the snooker on on the on the TV opposite, so I'm sort of a little bit distracted. Ignore me. Group F is over. I beg your pardon. Uh, next week will be Group G. So Group G is next week. Um, we've got four new teams to uh, to vote on. They are the Axumites, who um, we know were sort of the the ancestral race to the Ethiopians, to the modern Ethiopians, and uh, they uh, they controlled a, a bit of a sort of a maritime empire around um, Babel Mandeb and and the Red Sea. Um, we've got the Picts, who we uh, who we made a special episode on. They're very sort of romantically uh, thought of as these barbarians of Scotland. Um, so um, I'm sure we'll see a few votes passed uh, for them. And then rather interestingly, um, two two teams here that have got very close links to each other. We've got the Kassites, who were a, a Middle Eastern race of people who sort of came from the Iranian mountains and, and took over Babylon um, after the uh, the Hittites sacked Babylon um, in the in the in the sixteenth uh, century BCE, so way way back, but we've also got in this group the Babylonians themselves, who um, who established this city, and of course are very well known for Hammurabi and his law code, which is probably one of the most famous legacies of that. So it's interesting that we've got two cultures who um who would consider their their great capital city as the city of babylon so there we go group g the axomites the picts the Kassites, the babylonians look out on social media and cast your vote results will be announced next week listener messages and reviews got quite a bit to go through this week i'm going to try and steamroll through them Travis Quick wrote me a message on Facebook and has put, uh, I just recently found your podcast and just want to thank you for providing this content. Uh, thank you very much. My pleasure, Travis. Thank you very much. Uh, Callum Bliss has written in and said, uh, Hi, Chris. I've only just finished volume one, episode eight. At the end, you talked about someone emailing you to say that they didn't like your echo effect scattered throughout the episodes. I wanted to say, I love it. I was actually kind of sad when a few episodes in you admitted the laser sounds before the echoey announcements. Like I said, I'm not very far in, but I've been loving everything and I'm so excited to get up to 
the current episodes. I've been telling my girlfriend for weeks that I want something podcast or book that is a general world history. What you're doing is exactly what I was looking for. Thank you. Bring back the lasers if you haven't done so already. I think, Callan, you're referring to the the um the re recorded episodes, the episodes one and two which have been re recorded, but uh no further re recordings have been made as of yet. It's a Quite a quite an intimidating project doing the re-recordings, but hopefully one day I'll be able to do it. But thanks for the message, Callan, anyway. Um got a message from Harry through the uh through the WordPress page for the for the History of the World podcast page. But such a great podcast from Chris Hazler. I just started it and I am already loving it. Thank you, Harry. Very kind, very kind indeed. Um next one. Sorry, they're coming in from all over the place this week. Jake White has put in, hi, Chris. Your podcast is amazing. It's been a great companion on my way to and from work. My faith in creation and Christ is very strong. Because of this, I've always tended to avoid subjects such as evolution. I do respect the opinion of others, and I do not claim to understand how God actually did create the universe. I'm always... Uh, just afraid somebody's going to try and force their opinion on me. I was nervous about Volume 1 at first, but I was quickly disarmed by your humility. Your only agenda is to help us form our own opinions about how history played out. I was nervous in the beginning, but Volume 1 actually had the opposite effect on me. It bolstered my faith. I have reread the first three chapters of Genesis several times and my mind is blown. If one assumes a day isn't actually a literal day, then it's not a huge jump to assume God formed man over thousands of years. Peter even said as much, but do not forget this one thing, dear friends, with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years are like a day. Uh, next, I began to think about humans' higher order thinking ability as it compares to animals. I've heard some speculate that the size of our brains is related to us beginning to eat meat. So if there was a fall and a human did eat from a tree of the knowledge of good and evil, whether the tree be literal or figurative, uh, a moment such as this, humans disobeying God's order, resulted in our eyes being opened. And subsequently our innocence lost, realising that we are naked, may have triggered the beginning of humans developing the ability to, in essence, think like God himself, which also coincides with the biblical account of when humans began eating meat. This intelligence has helped the human race do amazing things and it also has been a curse for us. I'm pretty sure my dog is happier than I am most days. I'm rambling now, I have other thoughts on the matter, but just want to let you know that you've taken my faith to another level. I'm sure it was unintentional, but I appreciate uh, you nonetheless please continue to do what you are doing the only thing i'll say jake that was a, a very very interesting email that you've written there and it's great that um uh, that things not just my podcast of course but just generally that you're open-minded about um your thoughts about the world around you and uh you don't just sort of take someone's word for it really i think if you if you do believe in christ and you do believe in creation, then why should it be exactly as it is written uh, by one individual? Surely, um, surely many people have many different opinions, and uh, maybe it's closer to the truth to listen to those opinions. I mean, certainly, I feel personally, I'm um, I'm agnostic. Um, I do think um the sort of creation of the solar system um four and a half billion years ago it certainly makes sense to me 
Um, but uh, how that event came about, how the whole structure of the universe came about, um, who knows? And maybe God only knows. And and that's all I do know. So um, just uh, so, to sort of counterbalance that, I think if you're a Christian, um, you can have a, a valid discussion with me about um, about the origins of the universe. And we don't necessarily have to be at odds with each other, we can probably find that we uh, we have more common opinions than um, than you might expect. Um, but interesting message nonetheless. Uh, John Stewart has written in saying, thank you for your wonderful work. I am inspired and impressed. Thank you, John. As always, grateful to receive such messages. Richard Godfrey, I stumbled across your podcast inadvertently. I drive a local truck in Rapid City, South Dakota, with plenty of glass time as well. I'm a historical sponge, mostly conflicts and occupations. Your encompassing knowledge across the whole historical timeline is captivating and engaging. You're the first stop when I hit the road. Keep it up, brother. Uh, thank you very much, Richard. Very good message. Um, Sophie has written in saying, uh, Dear Chris, I hope you're well. Thank you for your lovely history podcast. I listen to one per day and really enjoy them. There is no other history podcast which covers as much details and episodes as you do. Please let let me know where I can donate some money to contribute so that we can all continue listening. You can, of course, um, donate through the historyoftheworldpodcast.com website if you click on the Patreon link. Or even the buy me a book link if you don't want to sign up for a, a long-term uh, plan. Um, you, there are other options there and uh, you may have discovered them, I'm not sure. But um, other than that, you'll always be uh, recognised as a lifelong member of the History of the World podcast, Illuminati, uh, whenever you do make any kind of contribution. And uh, we've got a new member to welcome this week. Anne mcdowell Lou has uh, become a member of the History of the World podcast Illuminati. So thank you, Anne, for your support. Uh, another message from Vince. Put hi there. I wanted to say thanks for the podcast and how much I enjoy it. I've been looking forward. Uh, I've been looking, sorry. I've been looking for a long time to find digestible content that covers the history of everything human the podcast seems to have the right level of details for what i'm looking for i'm only on episode nine of volume one but really enjoying it as an aside the podcast has made me look forward to going to the gym to exercise as i listen to a podcast every day i work out the length of time of the podcast is how long i exercise for so the longer they take the healthier i get thanks again from an australian listener thanks it's great to hear from uh, listeners all around the world that's a uh, a great comfort to me indeed. We also have a review uh, from Cuthbertson007 from Australia. He's put, love it. Absolute banger of a postcard. Postcard? Should that, uh, that should be podcast, surely. And can't get enough. Popped up as a recommendation from listening to Short History of. So I've only just started listening this week. Having started in volume four... Just dawned on me I have three previous volumes to listen to. Looks like I have my commute to work sorted out for the first half of 2022. I love Chris's passion for history and he makes uh, he makes of easy listening. Thanks, Chris. Cheers, James. Thank you. Um, very good review. Well, yes, of course, 2022 is fast approaching, isn't it? And this is actually the final podcast before Christmas. 
so as I sign off this week, uh, next week uh, will be uh, sort of, uh, it'll be after Christmas Day. So um, I'd like to wish you all a Merry Christmas and I hope you're not uh, denied from um, seeing your loved ones by uh, this uh, this quite naughty little virus that keeps mutating and making things a little bit tricky for us all. Um, so hopefully your Christmas goes really well and uh, it's not too uh, badly affected by events um, that are not necessarily in our control. So uh, until next week, have a great Christmas. Uh, next week will be the last podcast of the year, last episode of the year, The Byzantines Part 3. Be sure to join me, and until then, be good. The History of the World Podcast, written and presented by Chris Hasler. Please consider making a financial contribution by going to the historyoftheworldpodcast.com website and clicking on the Patreon link. Email the show at historyoftheworldpodcast at mail.com And don't forget to join our social media at Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and Tumblr. See you next time.